Hey there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for this Monday, September 21st. Coming up, we talk about the work-from-home trend in employers that are actually monitoring employees' screens, the ripple effect of closed office buildings in downtown Toronto, and the fight over the carbon tax is set to go to the Supreme Court. All of that coming up right now. Well, as the work-from-home movement continues during the pandemic, the use of surveillance software continues to boom as employers are trying to keep employees accountable. And for the latest on this, let's bring in tech expert Adam Oldfield, who joins us on Global News Radio. Adam, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, this topic is not exactly new, but employers are now employing some uh, new technology, including uh, some new screen monitoring stuff. Uh, What do we know about this? Yeah, I think it's nothing new with regards to how employers were always capable of monitoring employees with regards to the software. And just for the record, if you're using company equipment, uh, you know, it's to be expected that if you were in the office, the IT department was able to watch everything you did, what you typed, what you opened, what you saved. And now they're getting uh, more, uh, I would say, control over what's being done at the home. And these elements of which the employer is capable of doing is taking over your camera. It's almost like uh, we talk about, you know, uh, viruses and, and, and malware and ransomware taking over a system. And, you know, you hear about where they take over your camera and they can now monitor you. Are you sitting in the camera and sitting in front of the computer? Uh, they can monitor your surroundings. Um, and it is getting a little invasive. The question is whether or not it's, it's constitutionally right that this technology is uh, allowed in the employer's hands. And I was checking with a few uh, legal associates of mine because I love tech and it is crossing that legal barrier and the answer is uh, from what I'm hearing yes it is if it's company equipment uh, they have to should employ and advise in your agreement that company equipment can be monitored can be tracked and this information is susceptible to being reviewed so um, and I can honestly say this uh, from my side Jeff is that I own an ad agency my staff have been working remote for years Um, I advise them that we're in the cloud. We do a lot of tracking. Um, And there was a time I've been running my agency for 18 years that I used a software that I actually caught one of my employees taking uh, private confidential information and sharing it with my competition. So there's a balance of do you have trust, which you should with your employees, and another side of you just want to keep things running productive and efficient. And that's what software is supposed to do. Yeah. It's a very, very thin line. This is, is, yeah, it's really, really interesting because is this technology getting sophisticated or is it getting invasive, I guess? And I'm looking at something called Sneak here that is being described as a quick digital tap on a colleague's shoulder, which, as you were just detailing, basically they can turn your camera on and your computer and see if you're there doing uh, work, which, yes, you could argue, Adam, that uh, you're on a company machine, but also I'm now working from home, and uh, shouldn't I have some sort of privacy in my own home? Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of uh, bearings of if it is going to be turned on, you should be at least notified or at least commented that, you know, uh, at this time, you're, you know, there's a record button or, uh, you know, please be advised a, a supervisor is now online. Um, I think that's that's just more of a, uh, a courtesy, regardless of whether it's an employer or employee. However, um, you know, again, a lot of situations in larger corporations, um, you know, it's hard to be able to manage in that. 
that in that capacity. As we've seen, Google and Facebook and, and Twitter, a lot of the tech industries are now letting employees stay at home. They're letting them work from home. And at, when it's all said and done, uh, you know, an employer has uh, an expectation that the hours of the employer are going to be dedicated to providing productivity, delivering on expectations. However, the software that's available today, it gives a lot of control to the employer. And it really does limit the employee to say, maybe it's worth getting in the car, sitting in traffic and going downtown to Toronto and sitting in a tower. It's worth that aggravation than knowing that my camera can be turned on at a minute's notice. And I could be technically being, uh, uh, you know, someone could be monitoring my background. I don't know. And something might be inappropriately in the background that isn't truthfully the right of the employer to see. Well, you know, as as sophisticated as the so-called bossware is getting, also getting somewhat to sophisticated or at least a creative or some of the ways that uh, the employees are kind of working around this. <laughs> There's actually many ways that employees or um, uh, yeah, employees are able to monitor and keep an eye on their boss. Uh, there's actually a few systems that employees are capable. Of course, it's within limitations of what the IT department allows, but you can circumvent certain uh, limitations that allow the camera or even the, the keystrokes to be to be masked. Now, there's many software versions out there. I won't get into them that are that are available. But if you are in that position where you do feel like I do want to have a little protection, I think I'm entitled to that. Um, all you have to do is actually say uh, Google uh, what software can I do to protect my computer from my boss? A very simple sentence, and you will come up with a bunch of options available for you to be able to incorporate. Um, and what it does is it blocks. Think of it as, again, I, I, this is weird. I'm saying an employer-employee problem. It's it's like a ransomware or a malware. When someone tries to take over your computer or your monitor, uh, there's ways in your router, your internet, that you can actually block those, those systems. So you may be able to, it takes a little bit of uh, tech level, I would say a you're going to need about a five or a six out of 10 in technology, but you could easily uh, block a few of those uh, elements that you might think your boss is spying on you. Yeah, you know, this is taking the employer-employee relationship, uh, you know, the, the warring factions, if you will, to a new level, isn't it, to, to this uh, technology level? And really, I don't know, we've said this before, but isn't the solution simple here? It's just the employer sets out goals, targets that, uh, that are measurable and must be hit, and the employee does that work satisfactorily and hits those targets in the agreed time frame. That would be the primary element of it. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's what you would do in a normal business. I think that's kind of the expectation. Um, I think some companies are, this is the problem, Jeff, is that we've been thrusted into this remote working environment. This isn't something that was migrated over time. This is, you know, this all happened six months ago where it was offices are shut down. If you can work remote, we'll try to make it work. So I think there's a lot of adaptability right now that companies are trying to migrate to this remote working. I've been running my office since 2015 remotely, and it hasn't been perfected until I would say eight months ago, even before COVID, that I felt like I had a system that would work. So I can't imagine a company that was used to having, uh, uh, you know, uh, everyone coming in every day, get your coffee, sit at your desk, have your little, uh, you know, chit chat about the weekend. And then now everyone's thrusted into their home, turn on your computer. You know, it's time to work. You work from this time to this time 
you get your breaks, you get your lunch, you tell them when you're off, and then at the end of the shift, you all sign off. It, it, there's no uh, connection. So I, I know that's extremely difficult, and I can speak to it from personal experience. I've had five years. Many companies only had six months or less. Yeah, I just feel like we're at the high-tech version of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. The, we get the boss who's the principal. The rest of us, the workers, we're Ferris and we're doing everything we can uh, to not uh, go to school and uh, just uh, enjoy our time or day off. Adam Oldfield, always a pleasure. Always enjoy our time with you. Thanks for this. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great afternoon. Well, the shift to remote work due to the pandemic having a devastating impact not only on downtown, but actually the entire economic ecosystem, if you will, that downtown is based on. I mean, certainly restaurants are feeling it with fewer customers for lunch, but it goes far beyond that. And joining us now to discuss further is Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, good afternoon, and thanks for coming on. Happy to be with you. All right, we think of, we've talked a lot about restaurants in the downtown, but that really is only part of the puzzle when it comes to the pandemic in downtown, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. Look, if you are, the pandemic's affected businesses in, in almost every part of the economy. Small and medium-sized firms, especially in retail, hospitality, the service sector, uh, arts and recreational businesses, these are the ones that were hit the hardest. Um, And then even harder than that, though, are those same businesses located in in large urban areas that are frequented by office workers. If you're dependent upon office workers that are busily going about their day, coming to, from work, on coffee breaks, lunches, for shopping or services, you are really struggling and will be for some time. And sometimes, I mean, the old adage in real estate is location, location, location. And I'm thinking about businesses in the path, and that has not been discussed much. But, uh, I mean, obviously it is very vacant uh, down there beneath the uh, Toronto uh, City streets uh, right now. And there's a lot of businesses that are really hurting because they just don't have that foot traffic anymore. That's exactly right, and and those rents are often sky high for those very same businesses that they're. I mean, they pay a premium typically to have access to that many customers that will walk past their location on a daily basis. Uh, that is now turning to be an anvil around their neck because those high rents without those same numbers of customers uh, is, is pushing many into bankruptcy. So we're going to see a hollowing out of of shops, uh, restaurants. Uh, dry cleaners, other service businesses in those pathways. And, and remember, these are often you know, new immigrants to Canada that are putting their whole life savings on the line to, to set up the, the little convenience store that serves office workers. Uh, they're often you know, people that have chosen that location because of the, the, the large number of customers. They're not making tons of money. Their margins are small at the best of times. And now they have no customers. I spoke to a Chinese restaurant owner who said that her weekend sales were ten dollars, ten bucks? That's not her profit. That was her total sales. Unbelievable. Uh, and I, I know you mentioned the rent story in the uh, path. Uh, I've read reports that they're upwards of two hundred dollars per square foot there. So I mean, I mean, nobody can survive even if the rent's free on ten dollars worth of sales a, a week. But uh, again, these are the ripple effects because you know all of a sudden if that business can't survive and has to close, then can uh, the landlords rent it out and at what cost and, and what price? I mean, it just goes on and on. It sure does, and and unfortunately, not likely to ease up uh, in any huge way uh, for for any time soon. I mean, luckily there are some businesses, some offices that are starting to bring back workers, uh, but but that's a slow process. Most companies that I've been uh, 
talking to or listening to have said, you know, they may be bringing back 25% of their staff into office locations in the next few months. Maybe by year end, that could be as much as a third or 50%. But that's not going to be enough for many of these businesses. And and if they're not coming back soon, I mean, at least if you're in a suburban location uh, with parking, you're able to, to, to get some of your customers back a little bit more easily in these office towers with office workers still in many respects working from home. Uh, that process is just going to take an awful lot longer. And I'm not sure that these businesses are going to be able to withstand that unless they have super deep pockets. And when we talk about those ripple effects, I'm wondering if this is going to halt maybe the construction boom. I mean, we got two projects going on right outside our window here down at the uh, waterfront. But you have to wonder if there's less people in existing office towers. And also, we've had reports, of course, of people fleeing the city, moving out of the city for the uh, outskirts. Uh, What sort of ripple effect that's going to have? Yeah, look, I mean, the the one benefit, of course, of the the giant uh, number of condo towers that have been going up in our downtowns is there are there are some residential customers, but you know, residential customers don't often go into the you know an office tower for lunch or to go to do their daily shopping. Uh, they are far more likely to do streets uh, street side locations, and as a result of that, uh, they're going to see some ongoing pressures. We at CFIB are estimating that the number of business bankruptcies over the course of the fall is likely to skyrocket. Our estimate is anywhere between 55,000 businesses to 225,000 businesses across Canada that will no longer be there on a permanent basis because they're not going to be able to outrun their debt. Uh, this is in part because they have you know, the rent support program that the government of Canada and the province of Ontario has launched has just not worked. It's, it's really delivered very, very poorly, and most firms are running out of any degree of bandwidth to be able to to hang on, hoping for brighter days. Those that are in suburban locations are a little bit better off. They're starting to see some of their customers return, but but in the office office towers, path, uh, gosh, that's going to be a long, long long-term recovery, and the supports need to be there to help ease some of these businesses back to brighter days. Okay, I've got about a minute left here, Dan, but what is the CFIB, what is the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, uh, what do you want to hear, what are you looking for from the uh, throne speech, which is coming up uh, later this week, uh, from the government that could really make a difference? Oh, yeah, a couple of things. One, we want to make sure that the, that the the support programs that are already in place are working better. That's the SEBA loan program that provides $40,000 loans. The rent support program, we're wanting to make sure that the money can get directly to tenants on an ongoing basis. But beyond that, we need government to put the brakes on some of the tax hikes that are already in the works. Canada pension plan premiums are expected to rise on January 1st, 2020. Uh, that's already in the in the works. So if we don't put the brakes on, it's going to happen. Another carbon tax increase in the spring. We need those things blocked. And we're asking the federal government, please, please, please focus on the pandemic and getting us through this. Don't launch giant new spending programs that are going to add billions to the debt for non-COVID-related items. Uh, um, that's what we're hoping to see uh, later this week from the throne speech. All right. Dan, really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much. Anytime. There goes Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Starting tomorrow, the Supreme Court of Canada will hear not one, not two, but three separate appeals to determine if the federal carbon tax is, in fact, constitutional. And joining us for more on this now is Jay Cameron, who is a litigation manager with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. He's on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Jay, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. 
Well, appreciate you coming on. Uh, what is it that Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, what are they set to argue in front of the Supreme Court? Well, they're about to argue that, um, this is from my perspective, but that this particular policy from the federal liberals regarding carbon taxing is a constitutional Trojan horse. And and it is a, a under the facade of altruism, it is a cloak for paternalism and for an alarming amount of authoritarian control over the lives of Canadians generally and the resource development in the individual provinces. And so their argument is, is that the Constitution Act 1867 divides the powers between Parliament and the provinces and that the division of powers remains key to our federal state and that it's part of the fabric of, the Canada, and it can't, of Canada and it can't be changed without undermining Confederation itself. And as the Alberta Court of Appeal pointed out, the federal and provincial governments are co-equal and the federal government is not the parent and the provinces are not the children. But increasingly, what you see out of Ottawa is this paternalism. And so regarding resource development, Ottawa's argument is, is, that, um, is that it ought to be able to control resource development under what's called the Peace, Order, and Good Government uh, provision in the Constitution Act, 1867 and uh, Section 91. Uh, but that provision has only been used six times ever to expand uh, federal power. And so under the Constitution Act, uh, 1867, ownership and control of resources and their development and their trade and taxation is unequivocally a provincial matter. And that's what the Constitution says. And so, Okay, so in other words, I guess the provinces are saying, basically, if we just boil this down, that it's an overreach of the federal uh, powers. But would the federal government in turn argue to the Supreme Court then that uh, the environment is of national concern, it's a national uh, cause or file? Yeah, that is their argument. They're saying that it's necessary uh, for Ottawa to take control of resource development because the environment is is a national concern. And to that, the Alberta Court of Appeal in its recent decision said that the, the environment is a concern for everybody in Canada, and it's a concern for each of the provinces as much as it is federally. And each of the provinces are taking steps uh, to deal with the issue of pollution now, would it factor in at all? We were discussing uh, late last week uh, here on the program, the Canadian Taxpayers uh, Federation have brought to light some uh, documents that show that the uh, carbon tax really isn't uh, as advertised. It's not doing uh, what they thought it would. As a matter of fact, uh, the, they say the federal government's uh, latest inventory report proves the Trudeau carbon tax is just a tax grab descri- disguised as environmental policy. And they look at the BC where emissions are uh, going up there. Meanwhile, they've got the most onerous uh, carbon tax uh, out there. W- would that be an argument that they could use with the Supreme Court? Absolutely, because the function of the taxes is really wealth redistribution and a, and a wealth grab, a tax grab. And uh, but it's under the auspices of of helping the environment. I think it's worth noting that Canada's net contribution to global carbon dioxide emissions is a is a rounding error essentially. And so you, Canada has the third cleanest air in the entire world, and the most dirty air in, in, the, in the country is actually in Sarnia, Ontario. And so there are, there are localized issues with pollution which can be addressed and ought to be addressed by local politicians, uh, but for the government to say, for the federal government to say, we're going to control everything is just, it's just more authoritarianism for Marla, to be honest with you. It's not much different than Ottawa's attempts to uh, combat 
online hate, but really what they want to do is control legal speech on the internet or confiscate firearms from Canadians who are legal gun owners. Uh, it's 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 about top-down control under a veneer of altruism. All right. Would the uh, government then, in turn, argue back and forth uh, that they would say, uh, well, listen, it might be a so-called rounding error, the amount of pollution uh, we're putting out to the world, but having said that, we have a responsibility as a country to uh, put our best, put, uh, best foot forward, sorry, and lead the way on this issue. Well, cer- certainly that is what they're going to say. And and so that is going to be how they attempt to justify uh, essentially taking control of, of resource development in the province. And the Alberta Court of Appeal correctly pointed out that hidden in this Carbon Pricing Act is our, our reservations uh, for the federal government of sweeping controls over the approval of projects, the development of resources, their uh, their export, and their taxation. And and so it, it essentially gives the federal government power over every aspect of resource development. And that would remake Confederation. People need to understand that, that Confederation is set up in a certain way so that there are provincial rights regarding a lot of the issues that are of provincial interest, and uh, and and this act would essentially undermine the way that the country is set up and set a very dangerous precedent on not just this issue but many others. Jay, I have to believe that this is a bit of an anomaly for the uh, Supreme Court. They hear all different uh, and kind different kinds of uh, issues, but it's not too often I think that we see the uh, provinces, particularly in this case, sort of band together and go after the federal government, uh, if you will, in a court. Do we have any precedent whatsoever when it comes to this? Is there any way to gauge which way kind of the wind is blowing here? You know, the, as far as a historical precedent where all the provinces or most of the provinces band together to say, this isn't in any of our regional interests and it's not good for Canada generally, no, it's, it's unprecedented. And so uh, it's going to be a big showdown at the Supreme Court of Canada. And the consequences are going to be far-reaching if this law is upheld, because like I said, it would reshape the country. From what I understand, it's a two-day hearing. Do we have any idea when the Supreme Court could render a verdict? Well, judging how long the decisions from the other courts uh, have been, it's going to take a while to write. And uh, so I expect it's going to be at least six months. All right, Jay, appreciate your time with us this afternoon and uh, the update as well. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. That's Jay Cameron. He is litigation manager with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, discussing this case that is going before the Supreme Court starting tomorrow, where these three provinces, us here in Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, taking on the federal government over the carbon tax. And that'll do it for the Jeff MacArthur podcast. Thanks, as always, for downloading and listening. Just a reminder, you can listen live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 at 640toronto.com. And find us on Spotify. Just search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or find us wherever you get your favorite podcast.